That's John chapter 2, and we'll pick up our reading here at verse 13. Beloved, once more hear the inerrant, the infallible word of the living God. And the Jews' Passover was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves, and the changers of money sitting. And when he had made a scourge of small cords, he drove them all out of the temple, and the sheep, and the oxen, and poured out the changers' money, and overthrew the tables, and said unto them that sold doves, Take these things hence, make not my father's house an house of merchandise. And his disciples remembered that it was written, The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. Then answered the Jews and said unto him, What sign showest thou unto us, seeing that thou doest these things? Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then said the Jews, Forty and six years was this temple in building, and wilt thou rear it up in three days? But he spake of the temple of his body. When therefore he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this unto them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. As far as the reading of God's holy word, and may we be richly blessed under it this morning. I want to get directly to the text this morning, but, but before we do, I, I think a comment or two might, might be useful for us. Friend, this text is a text that you and I need to sit under. Uh, every text, of course, of God's word, we, we ought to be under and pleased to hear it. But, but there are some texts for some generations that are especially pertinent. And I'd submit to you that for our generation, the text before us is one of those texts. For us, in these the dregs of time, this is a text that searches us and it corrects us. This is a text about glory. This is a text about our all-glorious Christ. Not about programs, community. Not about... You and not about me. This is a text about our all-glorious Christ. Friend, on a Lord's Day morning, on a Lord's Day morning in a generation like ours, this text corrects us. Because we so often wonder from this. We need to hear this text as it shows us the Christ who is our all-glorious Redeemer. And how does it do this? Well, friend, of course, from the 13th verse of John 2, you and I find ourselves in the temple. We find ourselves there at the very earliest stages of Christ's public ministry after his baptism and after his temptation in the wilderness. And we find ourselves there in the spacious court of the Gentiles, And we see the Savior drive out the merchants. But we're not the only ones there. It's not just the reader, if you like, that's there in this moment. 
as we take up verses, well, really our text this, this morning that starts at verse 18, we recognize that there were others there as well. The Pharisees were there. They were there. Perhaps they were where they normally would have been, on the western wall in the, the council house of the Sanhedrin. Or perhaps they were there in the court of the Gentiles themselves. But, but however they were there, they were made aware of what Christ had just accomplished. There are two things that they would have been keenly aware of. The first thing is quite simple. It's that there was a disturbance. There was a disturbance. Something that had not happened before happened just moments ago. But the second thing that they would have been aware of, as we see this here, is that without any deterrence, Christ cleared the spacious court of the Gentiles of all of its merchants. Now friend, you could imagine if the Pharisees were there in the court, and they were watching there as the Savior with the scourge drove out the merchants who had been there without any controversy beforehand. That the Pharisees might have looked up to the Antonia at different points as Christ made his way through the court, wondering, when will the Roman garrison move? When when will they come down? After all, the Antonia, the the Roman fortress, was, was built so that the soldiers in the garrison could quickly move into the court. If there was any disturbance of this kind, perhaps they cast their eyes to the Antonio, waiting for someone to prevent the Savior. Or maybe, or maybe they looked to the temple, that is, the actual temple building, the court of the women, the court of Israel, and so forth. Maybe they looked there, waiting for the temple priests, not sorry, the temple guards to come out, who again were there specially, specially to preserve order. And nothing, nothing. Ah, typically, neither the Herodians nor the Romans stir to prevent this. And then more than that, in this wonderfully large place, Christ successfully rids it all of the merchants, and not even the merchants turn on him. That's what the Pharisees were aware of. And so, they come with a question. In verse 18, what sign showest thou to us? What sign showest thou to us? The exchange in front of us is a rather extraordinary exchange. It's, it's both cryptic and, and relatively unusual. And it begins with this question. What sign showest thou unto us? The word sign there is the word semion. It's a striking word. It's a word usually used in the New Testament to describe a miracle. So it is in Mark 8. The Pharisees came forth seeking of him a sign from heaven. Again in Acts 4, the apostles said, signs and wonders were done by the name of the holy child Jesus. In the Septuagint, it's this word semion that describes the work of Moses and Aaron. Moses and Aaron did all of these wonders before Pharaoh. And even in our own text, in chapter 2, this is the same word that you find both in verse 11 and verse 23. 
This is the beginning of miracles. Simeon. Verse 11, verse 23, when they saw the miracles, Simeon, which he did. A friend, it's a striking question to ask. They're asking about miracles, but, but there are two ways that you could read this question, and both grammatically are, are, are possible. The one way, and I would say this is the most common way that it's read, is, is in light of later exchanges between the Pharisees and Christ of a similar kind. And, and the question then is read something like this, well, show us one of these miracles to demonstrate that you have the authority to do what you've just done. In other words, show us that you are vested with the right to cleanse the temple and do so through a miracle. That's one way of reading the text, but in order to read it that way, you have to supply a lot of ideas. You need to introduce, for instance, the idea of exousion. That's the idea of lawful authority. It doesn't come up at all in the original. Also, you have to read into this a question that's not asked. And that is a question, what sign will you show us? What's striking is the question that you have in verse 18 is in the present. What sign showest thou unto us? Which can be legitimately rendered, what sign are you showing us? Could they be asking, what sign have you just displayed? In the original, you can read it that way. And you can imagine, having seen what they've seen, that that's quite a legitimate question. But however we read it, if we, if we read this as a question asking for Christ to demonstrate his authority, or, or they're asking Christ to further explain what they've just heard of, or what they themselves have witnessed, it doesn't really matter. Because behind that question is a subtle acknowledgement. The Pharisees acknowledge that Christ is not a rabble-rouser. You see, friend, of course, if he was simply some kind of anarchist, if he was simply there and they perceived him to be there only to make a disturbance, that was very easily dealt with and there would be no exchange like this. The Pharisees know that this is not your run-of-the-mill, difficult and, and difficult individual. He's, he's not a menace to society. Instead, they treat him like a prophet. Instead, as they watch Christ, they discern that he is prophet-like. And so they ask, they ask this question. As you look at verse 19, the Lord responds, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. There's an emphasis here that, that, might, that we might miss. And the emphasis is just this. This temple. This temple. Verse 20. They respond. Forty and six years. This temple. Again, that's the emphasis of the text. This temple and building. Was this temple and building. And wilt thou rear it up in three days? Christ's response has left them bewildered and incredulous. The Pharisees don't quite know what to make of this kind of reply. But I want you to notice in our text, it's not just the Pharisees that would leave this exchange bewildered. The, the inspired historian really assumes that the reader will too. Because in the last two verses that we read, he actually explains to us. He, he interrupts the narrative, he interrupts the chronology to explain to us what Christ really meant. 
But he spake, says John, of the temple of his body. When therefore he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this unto them. And they believed the scriptures and the word which Jesus said. And so you and I as the readers were told what Jesus' statement meant. He was speaking about his death and his resurrection in this reply to the Pharisees. But I want you just for a moment to place yourself there. The the Pharisees receive no further reply from Christ. They raise this reply incredulous and, and bewildered as they are, but but it's met with silence. Just silence, and perhaps in the background, the scuffle of merchants as they try to put themselves back together. That's how this exchange ends. And so, as I said, as we look at this, this text could be seen as being rather curious, even cryptic. And in one sense, the text itself acknowledges that by interrupting the chronology, by taking us after the resurrection of Christ to explain how the disciples later interpreted this exchange, but by interjecting the explanatory note itself at verse 20 for us, the reader is given the indication that this is supposed to be received as a cryptic text. So that raises, I think, two questions. First of all, it's a question about the Pharisees' question itself. Given that Christ's reply is supposed to be received as being cryptic, why did that question warrant it? Just briefly, friend, I want you to notice that however you take the question, whether they're asking Christ to interpret what he's just done, or asking Christ to validate his place and authority to do so, however that question is asked, in a sense, it's a good question. It's a very good question. And yet, and yet Christ replies in this way that is cryptic and, and clearly, clearly in a form of rebuke. Why would they receive such a reply? If the question itself is good, why receive this kind of cryptic and, and really, and, and well, I suppose this cryptic rebuke would be the best way to put it. Why do they receive it? Well, if we've been reading carefully the first chapter of John's Gospel, I think an answer comes to us readily. Just the previous week, chronologically, just the previous week, a deputation from Jerusalem had been sent to John the Baptist. That was only about ten days before. And you remember that in that deputation from the Pharisees and from the Sadducees, John made no made no opportunity for confusion. He offered them a direct reply. He was not the Christ, but standing in their midst was the very one whom John had preached about. And yet, they ignore him. On top of that, you come to verse 29 of John 1. John the Baptist, really in a form of corrective, I think we ought to take it so, he says, Behold the Lamb of God! Don't look at me. Behold him. Because he's here and his public ministry is commenced. You need to see him. Then again, he has to reiterate the command. And only after that second reiteration do disciples start 
to follow Christ. The point is, in the previous week, the Pharisees, the Pharisees ought to have known. They ought to have known the one who stood before them. They ought not to have stood incredulous and unbelieving. And friend, even the fact that they treat him as a prophet here indicates that they recognize he's not an anarchist. Even their question, as it were, gives the ground for their rebuke. So what of Christ's answer? Well, Christ's answer, friend, is the central focus of this text. It is structurally, it is in its substance. And the answer tells us something about the work of the Pharisees and the work of Christ. Here's what they will do. They will destroy. Now, in the original, it's the imperative that's given to us, but standing as the indicative. Christ is saying, this is what they will do. They will destroy this temple. And then he tells us something about his identity. This temple, says John, refers to his body. We'll see how that refers us to the person in a moment. And then it also tells us about Christ's work. Just as it told us what the Pharisees would do, so it tells us what Christ will do. This temple that they will destroy, Christ says, I will raise it up. Now friend, when you look at the last two verses that we read, John tells us that this exchange is what the disciples recall after the resurrection. They, in their minds, they go back to the earliest moments of Christ's public ministry and they recall this conversation. And why do they do that? I want us for the rest of our time to meditate around that question. What did they see in this exchange that illumined for them and reinforced for them what they beheld in the resurrection? Friend, in this text, the theme that I'd like us to meditate on is just this, that Christ's resurrection uniquely displayed his glory. That's what Christ was saying. They would destroy this temple, but he would raise it again. And after the resurrection, the disciples would see this to be so. I want us to see how this is true, both with regard to his person and his power, and also with regard to his prerogatives. And so take, first of all, his person. I want you to notice in Christ's reply at verse 19, Christ describes himself as this temple. Now, I I said to you that that was emphasized in the original. This temple. It's adversative in the sense that he's saying this temple as opposed to that temple. Uh, It's important to keep that in front of you. And this would be a shocking statement for the Pharisees to hear. This temple, as opposed to some other, was there another temple? For the Jew, that was certainly something they would not be accustomed to hearing. Not, of course, in the context in which they heard it. And so, John, the evangelist, explains for us what he meant. He spake of the temple of his body. A friend, if we've been paying attention Again, back to the first 14 verses of John's Gospel. John has been leading us to think this way. If you go back just for a moment in your mind, or you can turn there if you like, to verse 14 of chapter 1. 
You remember you find the words there, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. The word dwelt there is a word that's quite staggering. It's a word that that literally translated means tabernacled. The word tabernacled, says John, among us. And now John tells us that, that Christ is this temple to whom he's referring. What is John doing? Well, friend, he's doing the very same thing that we read in Matthew 12. That text from Matthew's Gospel, you remember, reads this. He's, when, he's referring, when he's speaking with the Pharisees, Christ says, So in this place is one greater than the temple. Literally translated. That, that simple phrase is, literally, a greater temple is here. That's what this text is about. Showing us that indeed the word tabernacled, if I can put it even this way, templed among men. He was the greater temple, says John. This is what the Pharisees missed. And what he says here very pointedly is that in him being raised from the dead, this too would be made clear. The resurrection of Christ would would underscore and, and demonstrate even more conspicuously The fact that he is the greater temple. Well, friend, I want you to notice that all of this language refers to the fact that this Christ is, in fact, the God-man. That he is Emmanuel, God dwelling with us. And that's the point of this passage. He, he has come down. In his incarnation, he remained the divine son. And in the resurrection, says Christ, that will be clearly manifest. Three times in Christ's public ministry, there was an extraordinary token of his sonship. At his baptism, at the center point of his ministry, and of course immediately before his sufferings at Calvary, we're told from heaven that he is the divine son. But the scriptures speak to us especially about the resurrection as being confirmation of his divine sonship. Take, for instance, what the Apostle says in 1 Timothy 3. Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit. And understand that we go to another text, like Romans 1, where Paul says that he was preaching concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. What you and I are to learn from that is, is that in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it was made especially clear that he was God among men. That this was the Lord God incarnate. The Lord of glory that walked the earth. Christ, in his exchange with the Pharisees in this moment, is indicating clearly that they will see. They will see that he is the one vested with all authority to do what he's done. And also the one who alone has such right. The resurrection will will extol the deity and the sonship of Christ. But friend, I want you to notice, as you look at this text, 
This is not supposed to be a jumping off point for us to think about the theology of resurrection. Uh, John is reminding us that the disciples, after the resurrection, more clearly understood this passage. And what did they more clearly understand then? Well, friend, they more clearly understood every aspect of it. You have to receive it that way. That They understood what Christ meant, for instance, when he said that he was this temple. That in his incarnation, he tabernacled among them. And what does that mean? Just very, very briefly, what does it mean for the disciples to remember that Jesus was this greater temple, as he calls himself here in our text? First of all, friend, you and I are to remember that the imagery that the Jews would have had would first of all have been views, ideas of glory. And that's why I took us back to Exodus 40. That's why I took us back to 2 Chronicles 5. When they thought of the temple, they thought of glory coming down and God manifesting His majesty as He dwelt among them. And in fact, as you look throughout the history of the Scriptures, and as you look even at at, at secular history, as they reflect on Solomon's temple, there's evidence, there's evidence that that glory cloud, not only did it stay over the tabernacle as long as it stood standing, but also so, so Solomon's temple. The Jews believed, and, and there's again secular record to attest to this, that there was always a cloud over Solomon's temple. It didn't fill it like it did in Second Chronicles 5, but the glory cloud was there. It just wasn't there in Herod's temple. No, Herod's temple, the second temple, were told that it would be filled with the glory of the Lord, but not by smoke. Haggai 2, I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. That's the second temple. But how would that be done? How would glory be manifest in this temple? Well, there, beloved, it takes us back to Malachi 3. The Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple. When the disciples remembered that Jesus said that he was this temple, friend, what they were acknowledging was that he was God dwelling among them, tabernacling among them, that he was the Lord who had suddenly come into his temple. That's how this temple would be filled with glory. It would be as Christ approached, who was the holiest thing there. They would have remembered, friend, as they reflected on Christ calling him such, the holiness and the majesty of the person of the Son of God. Just briefly, friend, you remember Isaiah 6. In Isaiah 6, you have the temple vision of the prophet. And it's, it's one that's staggering, where you have the Lord high and lifted up, and you have the seraphim around not only ready to do his will, but covering their feet as well as their eyes in the face of such majesty. That's the idea of the temple for the Jew. It's an idea of glory. There, God is especially manifest in his glory. But how are we supposed to understand this in relation to Christ? 
How would the disciples have reflected on the fact that this Christ was the greater temple? I think John Owen helps us here. He says, when we look at Isaiah 6, we should see there that it was a representation of the glory of the divine presence of Christ filling his human nature. That is, the temple of his body with a train of all glorious graces. And if this symbolic representation was so glorious that the seraphim were not able steadfastly to behold it, how exceedingly glorious is the thing in itself. When they reflected on this fact after the resurrection that Christ said He is this temple, friend, they ought to have thought, and I'm sure they did, that, that this, is a, this is a clear testimony to the glory of Christ. Where God most manifested His glory, they ought to have seen was merely a shadow of what they would find in the incarnate Son of God. But there's something else that the temple would have represented to them. There's something else that they would have understood when Christ said, I am this greater temple. The temple was also a picture of divine mercy. You remember in Zechariah, when the prophet there is sent to encourage the people in the work of rebuilding the temple, the Lord says, through him I am returned to Jerusalem with mercies. My house shall be built in it, saith the Lord of hosts. How would they know that God would be merciful? Zechariah says it would be through the rebuilding of this house. The temple then was emblematic of the mercy of God. And for so many reasons. You see, friend, there you had a picture, as I've often said to you, a picture of the gospel in brick and in mortar. Everything, says the writer to the Hebrews, in Hebrews 9, is a, is a portrait, if you like, of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was a picture of mercy. And so when Christ says, I am this greater temple in Matthew 12, when he refers to himself as this temple in our text, he is saying too that he is the embodiment of everything that the temple embodied. Not only glory, but also the mercy of God. Friend, when the disciples reflect on the fact that he said that I am this temple, they would have then remembered too that he is saying that he's the embodiment both of the majesty and of the grace of God. In Psalm 29, when the worshipers of God came into the temple, everyone they said there speaks of divine glory. But simultaneously, in Psalm 48 we're told this, We've thought of thy loving kindness of God in the midst of thy temple. Beloved, when Christ said that, he was saying he was just the embodiment of everything. It wasn't a shadowy way displayed in the temple. He tabernacled truly among men. He was the antitype of all. There's a powerful image of this in Second Chronicles 5 that we can't miss. In that text, you remember, the, the, the chronicler emphasizes the fact and, and almost orbits the fact again and again that, that the glory cloud does not fill the temple until, until they are saying, for he is good, for his mercy endureth forever. Beloved, does that strike you? The clearest display of majesty in the temple 
came only as the people of God were singing about the mercy that they've received, the goodness of their God. You see, that's how you and I are supposed to think about the temple. But more than that, that's how you and I are supposed to think of Christ. Where mercy and truth are met together, righteousness and peace have kissed each other mutually. He is the incarnation of both divine majesty and mercy. He is this greater temple. If you were a disciple and you reflected on that, friend, what would that mean for you? It's a question I want us to take up at the end of our time together. But far more briefly, I want us to look at how these statements of Christ and his reflection on the resurrection indicate both his power and his prerogatives as well. You see that this is also in the resurrection, a display of his power. He says, I will raise it up. The temple of his body destroyed by others, I will raise up. And in the text, you and I are supposed to make the contrast. The contrast is the the Pharisees will destroy, Christ will raise up. It's a contrast between sin and righteousness, between good and evil. You will do that which is wicked, I will do that which is good. But you're also supposed to recognize the emphasis is upon the fact that Christ himself will do it. I, he says, will raise it up. It's a demonstration of Christ's power. And beloved, surely the resurrection exhibited that divine power so very clearly. You'll remember, of course, in the scriptures that the resurrection is at times attributed to the Father. In Romans 6, Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father. God raised him up from the dead, Acts 13.30. We also recognize in our text and and also John 10, Christ says, I have power to lay down my life and I have power to take it up again. And so the question often we ask is, well, whose power, whose power, was at work in the resurrection? And the answer, friend, is, is that it was divine power. Divine power shared equally by all persons of the Blessed Trinity. That's what you and I are supposed to see here. Christ was raised by that power that he possessed as the divine Son. Power that he possessed equally with the Father and with the Spirit. It was a demonstration of the glory and divine power of the one who is the God-man. Well, that's how you and I are supposed to understand this text. And it's crucial for us to see it this way for a very basic reason. When Christ was raised from the dead and he says, I, I have power to, to raise up, it, raise up my, my body again, or, or I have power to take my life up again, he, He is saying that he personally may do so. Friend, what he's saying is that he is possessed of that divine power. He's possessed of the self-same power that the Father is. And the resurrection was a clear display of that. Friend, I think we so often miss that. I want you to think about death just for a moment in order to underscore this point. Older theologians would tell us that that death only grows stronger over time. And what they mean by that is this, that, that at the point of death, 
You have a division, if you like, between the life that was and the death that's now come. There's a division between soul and body that has occurred. And the longer that that division occurs, it's as though the body and the soul continue to get further and further apart. In the sense that the body continues to corrupt. In the sense that there's a longer duration of time as the two are separated. Death, as it were, seems to grow stronger over time. And so what do we have in the resurrection? Christ, by that power that he possesses as the divine son, equal with the Father and the Spirit, he overcomes what seemingly is an omnipotent and ever-growing divide. I, he says, will raise it up. And so when the disciples after the resurrection reflect on this exchange between Christ and the Pharisees, they have a picture of divine omnipotence that Christ possessed. There was no question for the disciples that this is the Son of God equal with the Father in glory, honor, power, and majesty. But friend, as they reflected on this text as well, there's certainly a third and a final point that they would have remembered. And that is, of course, that the resurrection underscored that Christ, in fact, possessed the prerogatives that he always claimed. You remember, if you, if you go back to our time last Lord's Day morning, Christ calls the temple his Father's house. He doesn't say this is the Lord's house. He says this is his father's house and of necessity. That means that he as a son over his father's house has prerogatives. He has right to do as he's done. And friend, if the Pharisees question, if the question related to authority in verse 18, here Christ is saying, then in the resurrection you will have the most clear, most conspicuous answer. I have right and title to do as I've done because I am the divine son and as such this house is my father's. Friend, in the resurrection you have the authority of Christ so clearly manifest. His prerogatives so conspicuously set before us. Just think of Ephesians 1 for a moment. I know we've read this recently but it's worth revisiting. When he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world but also in that which is to come, and hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. What Paul is saying there very pointedly is that, that in the resurrection you and I see the exalted Christ. And, you, and we see him more clearly as he takes up the scepter. The scepter that was always rightfully his. Friend, that's the idea. William Symington actually puts it to us this way. In the resurrection, you and I are supposed to see a coronation day. He, was all, he always possessed the right. But, but in the coronation day of Christ, in the resurrection of Christ, you and I see more clearly the investiture of that right as our mediator. Beloved, as the disciples reflected on the resurrection and this exchange from that, they would have seen so very clearly what the apostles just told us. 
He's been given a name above every name that has been named in heaven or on earth. That in fact, head over all things to the church. So friend, as we close this morning, I want you to notice that this text, as I said before, is a text about glory. It's a text about glory because it reminds us that the disciples saw Christ as the temple. In the resurrection, they saw his divine power displayed. And and in the resurrection as well, they saw so very conspicuously that Christ had all dominion and authority as mediator. And so the question that comes to us from the text is how do we apply something like this? A rather well-known preacher today, pastor of many, many years, said that so often folks in the congregation just want a sermon where, where they're told what to do rather than being told what Christ has done or who Christ is. Friend, in our generation, I think that's certainly true. But in a text like ours, we are supposed to see the Christ who is there who is the embodiment of all of the glory and and really the archetype of all of the glory that the church under age saw in the temple. That we're to see in Christ all of that divine omnipotence that the blessed, adorable Trinity possesses. That we're to see that as He is mediator, He is possessed of all right and authority. That's the Christ who is there, friend. That's the Christ whom the disciples knew was there. That's what this exchange teaches us. And so the question that comes to us is not going to be fundamentally, what should I be doing? It's far more searching. The question is, do you see this Christ as he is? Do you see him as an all-glorious Christ? Friend, does it thrill your soul to meditate? on him in whom the fullness of the God had dwelt bodily. We don't meditate today on anything, really. That's, that's part of our generational difficulty, I suppose. But how infrequently do we meditate on the glory of Christ? This text offers us a challenge. But there's something else here that we can't miss either. Friend, as they recalled this exchange, what would they have seen? Well, when Christ said that he is this temple, as I've already said to you, you and I should see that this is the embodiment, really, of Psalm 85, where mercy and truth are met together. He is the incarnation. of the divine, He is the divine Son incarnate, which means he is mercy and truth met in one. What does that mean for you and for me? What would that mean for the disciples? There are a couple of points in the Gospels that I think illustrate this for us. One time there was a leper that came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. A leper, somebody who was unclean, who, who could not enter the court of Israel in the temple. They couldn't touch the gate. They couldn't touch anything, lest that thing became unclean as well. This leper comes to Jesus If thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. Jesus puts forth his hand and touched him. 
saying, I will be thou clean. The leper who could not, could not enter the old temple of brick and mortar, is touched by this greater temple and made clean. I think that's one way of answering the question. There's another vignette that we can look to as well. You remember in John 21, in the Last Supper, the disciple whom Jesus loved leaned on his breast at supper. A shocking statement. This temple that, that was so restricted that, that Herod's temple that was divided, even in a way that Solomon's wasn't. There was a court of the women and court of Israel. Solomon's temple was not so divided. Yet nevertheless, this greater temple, the Lord Jesus Christ, how closely would he walk with his disciples? So closely that John the disciple would hear the heartbeat of God incarnate. Or even more, as John himself puts it in 1 John, we have seen with our eyes, we have looked upon, our hands have handled the word of life. Beloved, all of these texts teach us something that we can't miss. And that is, as Christ is the greater temple, the archetype of everything the old temple stood for. He is glory magnified. And mercy magnified. Is it not breathtaking to think of one who is the greater temple walking so closely with men, willing to commune so intimately with them, even with the unclean? Beloved, that too belongs to our doctrine this morning. And so there is an exhortation from this text. The exhortation is to run to this temple, to this Christ. Will it run to him mindful that he is altogether glorious? Run to him mindful that you and I for an eternity will peer on his matchless worth, will extol his glorious name and never exhaust its worth. But run to this Christ also knowing that he delights to walk intimately with his people, though he is the greater temple. This is the Christ who's held out to you and to me this morning. May we flee to him. Amen.